Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you and your families are doing well. I also hope that our episodes thus far have been beneficial in some way. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but this is a work in progress, and as with any project, it might take a bit before we really hone in on the best approach, but I've tried to keep the episodes relatively short and bite-sized. We've just finished Jacob's Temple Discourse, and today we're going to be building up to the allegory of the olive trees. In Jacob 4, Jacob covers a range of subjects, but it all serves as an introduction to the longest chapter of the Book of Mormon, Jacob 5 where he quotes the prophet Zenos. So we'll do a lot of looking forward today, but we'll also see some consistency in Jacob's themes as well as Nephi's. One note on consistency before we jump into the chapter, the way we tend to read scripture in the church is that we take it a verse at a time, looking for something to grab us. There's real value in reading that way, but it can also serve to sideline the author. Think about how you think or how you tell stories. Have you ever told the same story at different parts in your life? Even if it varied a bit, did you draw on previous tellings to know how to effectively communicate an idea or event? How about having a similar discussion with different people at different times, say about a political idea or something? Did you form a completely new thought or did you draw on previous discussions that you've had? I'm guessing you drew on previous discussions because that's how we think. We don't think unidirectionally. We cycle back again and again to ideas, shaping them to our present circumstance. Prophets do the same thing. If you were to completely remove all of the storyline from the book of Alma, for example, and just look at Alma's seven discourses, you would see incredible consistency along with additional insights across the text. Jacob is the same way. All right, let's jump into Jacob 4, and we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. Jacob begins by commenting on writing on plates. He says it's difficult to engrave the words on plates, so he doesn't do very much of it. It's tedious. That's an interesting insight into his experience, but he's telling you for a reason. He says, Whatsoever things we write upon anything, save it be upon plates, must perish and vanish away. But we can write a few words upon plates which will give our children and also our beloved brethren a small degree of knowledge concerning us or concerning their fathers. What goes on plates is meant to last. It's meant to be passed down. Nephi, Jacob, and the other authors of the Book of Mormon are truly motivated by hope. They are acting in the present for the hope of future events. That's powerful stuff. Jacob says, Now in this thing we do rejoice, and we do labor diligently to engrave in these words upon plates hoping that our beloved brethren and our children will receive them with thankful hearts and look upon them that they may learn with joy and not with sorrow, neither with contempt concerning their first parents. The parallel to this section really is 2 Nephi 25. Nephi speaks of this prophecy of the plates coming forth in the last days and serving as an instrument to gather back Lehi's family and all of Israel. For this cause, he says, hath the Lord God promised unto me that these things which I write shall be kept and preserved and handed down unto my seed from generation to generation, 
that the promise may be fulfilled unto Joseph that his seed should never perish as long as the earth stands. There will be other parallels that we'll draw between Jacob 4 and 2 Nephi 25, but we have to assume that Jacob is operating with the same promise in mind, and that's why they're putting in the care that is required to engrave upon the plates. The plates that Nephi and Jacob are discussing here are the source for the record that we are reading. Does that change the way you read their words? What about those sections like the Isaiah chapters, or, I don't know, Jacob 5, that are long and require a little more effort to relate to? Maybe there's a reason Jacob is telling you this in Jacob 4. Maybe, like Nephi, he knows that some of these old prophets are hard to follow, and he wants you to have a renewed vigor going into the text, so that you may learn with joy and not with sorrow, neither with contempt. Let's continue into Jacob 4, verses 4 through 11. I mentioned that the other authors of the Book of Mormon were motivated by hope. That's exactly what Jacob tells us next. He wants us to know that they knew of Christ and they had a hope of his glory many hundreds of years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all of the holy prophets which were before us. We've mentioned before that Jacob doesn't shy away from suffering. He knows that this is a hard life and that there would be untold pain experienced by his people. But that isn't the whole story, and it isn't even the most important part of the story. Like it or not, we are all storytellers, and stories are powerful things. How you tell your story can change how you experience your life. For me, the promise of Zion, a people of one heart and one mind, has animated my life. What future promise about Christ's coming is something that you can fix your hope in? How would living as if that promised future were already here change the way you live, your priorities, your relationships? Adam Miller has this fantastic little book that I highly recommend called An Early Resurrection, Life in Christ Before You Die. He, like Paul, describes baptism as this early death that allows us to live in this world as if we were already resurrected, no longer motivated by the fear of mortality, but by hope and love in the resurrection. Go check it out. It's amazing. Returning to Jacob, he says that this hope in Christ is the intent of keeping the law of Moses, it pointing our souls to him. Like Abraham and Isaac, he's going to treat everything as a similitude of God and his only begotten son. Again, we have to go back to 2 Nephi 25. There's this famous and disputed verse in 2 Nephi 25. It's verse 23. You'll know it. It says, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also our brethren to believe in Christ, and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Now, we're not going to go down the rabbit hole of grace versus works here. Though I will say that it helps to know that Nephi is quoting Jacob from 2 Nephi chapter 10, verse 24, which adds some clarity. In addition to not understanding that Nephi is referencing Jacob in that verse, we also make the mistake of stopping after verse 23, when verses 24 through 27 serve as Nephi's example of what it looks like to be reconciled to God, as well as saved by Christ's grace. Quoting Nephi here, And notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses, remembering God's words about the law of Moses, and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ. Now Jacob will add, pointing our souls to him, 
until the law shall be fulfilled. For for this end was the law given, in similitude of Christ, is what Jacob says. Wherefore the law has become dead unto us, and we are made alive in Christ, because of our faith. There's that Paul and Adam Miller coming through right there. Next, Nephi is going to list all of the things that they do to reconcile themselves with Christ in addition to keeping the law. And we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies, that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. We might ask Nephi, why try so hard to reconcile yourself with Christ? And he gives us an answer, that we may look forward unto that life which is in Christ, and know for what end the law was given. If Christ is a source of grace and life, then all things need to become a way of pointing our hearts toward him. What in your life feels like a dead law or a sacrifice, but that with hope in Christ could actually be a similitude of him? Jacob talked about viewing our suffering in the light of Christ's suffering. What about viewing our life in the light of Christ's life? If we return to Jacob 4, we hear very similar words from Jacob. He says, We search the prophets, and we have many revelations in the spirit of prophecy, and having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken, insomuch that we truly command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. What is the purpose of prophets and revelation? To build a faith sufficiently strong enough to obtain a hope in Christ. So in Jacob's writings, we have faith, we have hope. We should expect to find charity somewhere coming up in Jacob 4. He continues with one of my favorite words in scripture, nevertheless. Yes, we had power, he says. Nevertheless, the Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by his grace and great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. Now there's the charity. Grace and charity will always go hand in hand together. Notice the focus on our weakness and his grace. Later Moroni will call weakness a gift that leads to humility. I have to think that he had Jacob in mind when he wrote those words. Jacob just won't leave weakness alone. Now we often resist considering our weakness or weaknesses is there a way to be shown or reminded of our weakness that invites us to depend on grace? What does that look like? He finishes off this section by praising God's power, and then he gives us this exhortation. Wherefore, beloved brethren, be reconciled unto him through the atonement of Christ, his only begotten Son, and ye may obtain a resurrection according to the power of the resurrection which is in Christ, and be presented as the first fruits of Christ unto God, having faith and obtained a good hope of glory in him before he manifesteth himself in the flesh. One final note on this section before we switch gears. This might be the gospel according to Mason coming through here, but I don't think we should assume that simply because something is symbolic, it's not real. We have the symbolic experience of death and resurrection when we are baptized, but the gift of the Holy Ghost is real, and so is the hope that we can obtain in Christ. Who's to say that our resurrection in some small way doesn't begin with that hope, or that each time we follow the command to receive the Holy Ghost, that our spirits aren't leading the way for our bodies in the resurrection? Just a thought. Jacob Brown's off chapter 4 in verses 
12 through 18. This section may seem like a shift since he starts talking about the fate of those in Jerusalem. But again, Nephi does a very similar thing in 2 Nephi 25, 9 through 19. Joseph Spencer has even argued that Nephi is taking his cue from earlier writings of Jacob in those verses. We begin in Jacob 4, verse 13, with a beautiful definition of truth from Jacob. For the Spirit speaketh truth and lieth not. Wherefore, it speaketh of things as they really are, and of things as they really will be. Wherefore, these things are manifested unto us plainly for the salvation of our souls. The only commentary I'll give here is that in our day we tend to think about truth as facts and events, as something objectively observable. I think that one way to juxtapose what Jacob's definition of truth is with our own is that Jacob believes that truth needs to be things as they really are and not things as they appear to be. Truth, then, is not simply what is observable, but it's observation coupled with the wisdom of the Spirit for the salvation of our souls. What role, then, do these concepts of weakness and humility and grace that we've been talking about play in our pursuit of truth in our lives? And do these things like weakness and humility and grace, do they only pertain to things that we might call religious truth or truth in general? It's this definition of truth that Jacob carries into his comments about the fate of the Jews. He's spoken on this subject before in 2 Nephi chapter 6. Remember that Jacob never lived in Jerusalem, so he is arriving at his understanding of what the people were like through the stories that his family has shared by studying the prophets and by receiving revelation. He knows that he is connected to that people, but there's also a certain distance that he has from them. He calls those who had lived in Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem has already been destroyed at this point, and the Jews have been carried away into Babylon, a stiff-necked people who killed the prophets and sought for things that they could not understand. It seems he still wants to talk to us about what it means to learn truth. Wherefore, because of their blindness, he says, which blindness came by looking beyond the mark, they must needs fall. For God hath taken away his plainness from them, and delivered unto them things that they cannot understand, because they desired it. And because they desired it, God hath done it, that they may stumble. Isn't he kind of describing all of us here? Haven't we all fallen? Didn't Adam and Eve fall into a lone and dreary world? that they couldn't understand on their own because they desired knowledge? Didn't they have to stumble through mortality as we all do? Lehi might interject here and add that all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. So we're right back to weakness and the need for grace in order to see the mark or things as they really are. Jacob is just applying what all of us experience to a specific time and place with the covenant people. He continues that he is led to prophesy, for he perceives by the workings of the Spirit which is in me, that by the stumbling of the Jews they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have safe foundation. But behold, according to the scriptures, he's referencing Isaiah 28 here, this stone shall become the great and the last and the only sure foundation, upon which the Jews can build. Jesus uses this same metaphor to describe himself. 
He tried to tell people that it was never about the temple in Jerusalem, that he was the true foundation stone. It wasn't about the manna, he was the true bread. It was never about the water or the brass serpent or the big candelabras during the festivals. He was the living water. He was the one who would be raised up. He was the light of the world. Before we jump to criticize anyone for not seeing all these things as a similitude of Christ, we might ask ourselves what we aren't seeing clearly. Do we get caught up in certain commandments, ordinances, practices, policies, doctrines, or whatever, and miss Christ? Do we believe that after everything we can do to reconcile ourselves to him, it really is only his grace that can save us? Jacob leaves us in chapter 4 with this question. How is it possible that these, meaning the Jews, after having rejected the true foundation, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you, if I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my anxiety for you. Wow, what a question. That's the lead into the allegory of the olive trees. And before we think it has nothing to do with us because we aren't, quote-unquote, the Jews, let's look again at this question and reframe it a bit. How is it possible that I, having rejected Christ, the true foundation, as I have many times in my life, can ever build upon him, that he may become the head of my life's corner? In other words, am I redeemable? Thanks for listening today. Make sure and check back as we continue our discussion of the allegory of the olive trees. Until next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom.